0: Well, again, welcome. I should have introduced myself uh, the first time I was up here. My name is Rob, and I am a pastor here. We are glad that you are with us, and this morning we have come to the end of our sermon series on First Peter. We just heard the verses read there by Eleanor. Uh, maybe you're just joining us for the first time today, uh, and so, uh, or maybe you could just use a little recap of First Peter. I'll give it to you. Peter is writing this letter to churches in Asia Minor in the first century, churches around modern-day Turkey. Uh, And he's writing to this young church, these young churches that are experiencing persecution, the challenges uh, of being a uh, kind of a minority when it comes to your worldview and faith. And he's writing to them so that they would be disciples, followers of Jesus, that make a difference in the world they live in. He says, hey, you're going to be a disciple that makes a difference uh, if you live a holy, a set-apart life, you're going to be a disciple that makes a difference. If you hope in something, someone different than uh, what all the people around you are hoping in, um, you're going to be a disciple that makes a difference if you live as a sojourner and an exile. It reminds them, it reminds us, "Hey, our primary citizenship, our primary home, is not in America. Your are citizens of heaven, and that's what dictates the way we live and love radically. It says, this is how you live if you want to be disciples that make a difference, and really, you have no chance of doing this unless you understand all that you have in Christ, all He is for you, all that He means for your life now, today, and for eternity. That's the only hope you have for living this way. So we're going to dive into these uh, last several verses, but before we do, I'm going to pray for us. Pray with me. Mighty and merciful Father, we pray that you would uh, just open our eyes and give us ears to hear of the hope that's found in you. Help us to see that your word leads to flourishing and life and joy. Because each and every one of your words points us to Jesus, we've come here this morning to see and hear from him. So by your grace, let us see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Um, these last verses here in First Peter speak to a danger in our lives, a danger in our spiritual lives. Um, I would even contend a danger that even modern medical uh, experts, health experts say uh, is a significant danger that we face. And I'm not here primarily uh, to scare you this morning, uh, maybe scare you a little bit, uh, but really I want to save you. I want to save us from missing out on what Peter's saying here from missing out on something that we desperately need, something that we're called into and something that we're designed for. The danger that Peter uh, is hoping that we avoid, the danger that I'm hoping that we avoid is, is living a lonely life, living a spiritually isolated and lonely life. Peter is pointing to community here. All right? Um... And maybe you're here this morning, you're still investigating Christianity. Uh, We are glad that you're with us. Um, You don't actually need to be a Christian to understand that there's a desperate need in our day and age for community and the tragic effects when it's not there. Uh, I recently came across some words from our nation's top doctor, the Surgeon General, a guy named Vivek Murthy. Murthy became Surgeon General when he was 37 years old. I'm like, slow down, man, right? Like... I just figured out what term life insurance was when I was 37 years old. You're like the top doctor in our country. Um, but like, listen to what he says about uh, the, the state of community in our, our country, the state of loneliness in our country. He says, despite living in the most technologically connected age in human development, people in this country are isolated and alone. The percentage of Americans who report being lonely, 40%, has doubled in a generation, Murthy pointed to research that reveals a lack of social connectedness is as much a risk for premature mortality, dying early, as obesity and smoking. Dr. Murthy says we must address diseases of despair driven by deficits of hope. Did you hear those words? We've got to address diseases of despair driven by deficits of hope. This isn't the Senate chaplain talking here, right? Like this is the medical doctor of our country talking about what's plaguing people in our country is that they don't have hope. Do you think 1 Peter says something about hope? you think First Peter has any answers for us when it comes to lonely? But here's what I'm guessing some of you are saying right now. First Peter, Rob, these verses, Rob, I, I don't know if I saw the community in it, right? Like I saw where I'm supposed to you know, be sober-minded and be watchful. I saw where I'm supposed to resist the devil, that I have this enemy and he's prowling around. I, I saw all these things, but Peter doesn't actually say any of that. You know, we have this tendency as Western Christians that when we read the Bible, you know how we read it? We read it as singular. We interpret it as singular. We make everything I and me. Almost all of these verses, almost all of them are plural, right? So if you want to read these verses the way Peter says them, what he actually says is um, you all need to cast All of your cares on God, right? He says, you all, y'all, all all y'all, you guys, right, Um, need to be sober-minded and watchful because you all have an enemy that you all need to resist. These instructions from Peter are for a community. Peter seems to think that we desperately need each other. God seems to think that we need community. So when we read these verses, we need to be mindful that, hey, These are for a community. Community's assumed. The world out there points to the fact that we need community. What what do you think? Well, why do we need community? Peter gives us a few reasons for why we need community. Reason number one we need community is to fight together, right? Look at verse 8. He gives these instructions. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Resist. That is, hey, um... Don't be lackadaisical. Don't be distracted. You need to be on the lookout, and you need to be ready for battle, right? Because we have this common enemy. Verse 8, you, your adversary, the devil, uh, is, is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, and at the risk of being annoying, right? Your enemy, you, you plural, right? It's not just, not just Rob's enemy, not just Eleanor's enemy, all right? He's all of our enemy, so this involves all of us. Can we have some, a little bit of devil chat, all right? Probably not a phrase you thought you were going to hear coming into church this morning. Um, what do you think of when you think of the devil and when you think of Satan? Um, the Bible makes it clear that there is a devil, a supernatural, personal being of great evil and great power. The Bible speaks of the devil in stark and terrifying terms, right? Um, The prince of the power of the air, the God of this world, the strong man, a roaring lion seeking to devour someone. This is how our enemy is spoken of. But if you were to turn to the world out there, the world out there when it comes to Satan or the devil, if it speaks of him at all, usually does so in jest, right? Usually does so really in silliness, right? We even make him the the, the mascots of some of our teams, right? Um, We don't really take uh, the Eve. I'm not going to say what teams, Uh, we don't take the evil one seriously in the world out there it's you know a guy with horns and a pitchfork the world goes out of its way to ridicule any kind of notion of a literal devil or satan right but uh when i read this book it's clear that it teaches that he exists and i was reminded of it this week something really helpful in a a book i read Yes, the Old Testament speaks of Satan and the evil one. And Paul writes about Satan and the evil one. But you want to know who really speaks of him the most? It's Jesus. Jesus acts and teaches and lives like there is a real, literal, spiritual, supernatural, evil being. And if he does, I think we should. Right, And here's the challenge, I think, for some of us. And really, it, I just want to make sure that we avoid it. It's, it's this notion that we're going to kind of let our personal bias kind of arbitrarily choose what we believe and what we don't believe. Because I think some of us are like, yeah, I'm all well and good when it comes to believing in personal, spiritual, powerful beings that are good like Jesus and God, but I don't really have time for kind of personal spiritual beings that are bad, like a literal Satan or devil. And friends, that's just personal bias arbitrarily leading the way. That's not living in light of scripture or living in light of truth. I just want us to see that there is an enemy of our soul and that we should avoid two things. We should avoid foolishly living in denial of that reality And as Christians, we don't need to live coward in fear of that reality either. I love the song we sing uh, at the first of the service, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Did you see there how Luther does it? Luther takes the evil one seriously. All right, read read the lyrics again. Uh, He has a place for understanding there is an enemy of our soul. But he also says, we tremble not for him. Right, so... um, (laughs) Peter knows that we need community so that we can fight together. Let me ask you this. What relationships are in your life to help you fight, to resist, to be sober-minded uh, against the enemy? Right? Uh, to help you fight against pride and worry. You know, verses 6 and 7, he says, hey, I'm going to warn you against pride and, and I'm going to warn you against worrying um, And it's no accident that right after he warns them, he says, oh yeah, you have an enemy of your soul. Because the enemy of your soul is up to his old tricks all the time. His common tactics of tempting you to pride, tempting you to worry. Do you have people in your life that are helping you resist that? Helping you fight that. Like if if I pulled out my phone, if you pulled out your phone, could you look at some of the texts that you've sent them to say, hey, pray for me. You know, I've got this going on in my life. This is is going down at school this week and I got to go teach. And I know that, man, my pride is going to be a place there. Like, do you have people, community in your life helping you fight, helping you to be sober-minded, watchful, and resist? Friends, um, you can do this in any myriad of ways. You can do it over coffee. Hopefully you are doing this in your community groups. Renewal groups, right, to help you battle with addictions in our lives or grief in our lives. Those are contexts for fighting. Teenagers, all right, student ministries, discipleship groups. If you're a teenager here today um, and you want to know the grace of Jesus and you want to not forget it, the best way is to have some friends that are going to remind you that, hey, we have an enemy, but also we have a great Savior. So a community that helps you fight together, also a community that helps us heal together. All right, look at what it says there in verse 9. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Peter wants to make it clear, hey, suffering, um, when it comes to suffering in our lives, it's not a solo journey. All right, in fact... Uh, when it comes to suffering, it is a passenger plane and every seat is full. We experience it, all of us as Christians. We have a shared grief. And so he reminds these first century Christians hey, you're not alone in your suffering, and you and I need to be reminded we're not alone in our suffering. Because when we start believing that, and the evil one starts working in his ways there too, right? Hey, you're the only one suffering this way, or actually you're suffering this way because God is mad at you and God is punishing you. I want to say real clearly, right? um, If you are in Christ, God is never punishing you in your suffering, all right? Um, If you are in Christ, um, someone else has taken your punishment. There's none left to take. Christ took it all. So if you are suffering, you can rule that out, that God is somehow punishing you. No, you're suffering because you live in a broken world and you have a common enemy, and we need to be convinced of that. We need to realize that this is a shared grief. And if it's a shared grief, we also have a shared hope, and we can share hope with one another. I I, I love how... um, Peter even shares some hope with them here, right? He says, your suffering is for a little while. A little while. It is March. It is March Madness. I can't talk about basketball all the time, but if there's any time I can talk about basketball, it's right now, right? So you're going to have to give me some license here, all right? Um, I know we got some hoopers in here. We got some girls that hoop. We got some guys that hoop. Imagine you had a basketball game, all right? This is your basketball game. I'm your coach, all right? And I tell you, hey, team, Uh, our opponent, we've done some scouting reports. Every report on our opponent is this. For the first quarter, they play like the best team in the league. For the first quarter, they're lights out. For the first quarter, it's going to be a dogfight. But after the, the next three quarters, they fall apart. The next three quarters, it doesn't matter because they've actually never won a game. It's just going to be the first quarter that's going to be really hard. How would you approach that game? How would you think about that game? Like, yeah, you would start playing, and the first quarter is going to be really tough. And you might get frustrated. Uh, you might look up at the scoreboard, and it's like, hey, we're behind. We're losing. All right? But as a coach, I'm just going to say, hey, guys, remember what I said. Remember, this is just the first quarter. Hang in there. Well, that's, that's something of what Peter says to to this church in Asia Minor and to you and to me. I don't know what your life looks like right now. Like, I don't know what the scoreboard on your life looks like right now. Like, when you look all around and you look at your physical health and your family and your relationships, and when you look up at the scoreboard, it's like, yeah, I'm I'm losing. Uh, I'm lost. Uh, Like, maybe that's what the scoreboard shows for you. But, Christian, you need to know this. God has never lost a battle. Right? There's times when it looked like he may have. We're getting ready to celebrate Good Friday. Good Friday on a hill outside of Jerusalem. It sure looked like God lost the battle. The scoreboard was not looking good. But three days later, Christ came out of the grave. Look what Peter says comes after this suffering, after a little while. He says, restoration and confirmation and strength and being established. Those things come. Three days after Christ goes into the grave, he comes out. And life is restored, and it's confirmed that it's not him in the grave, but now death is in the grave. And his power and his reign are established. That's our Savior, and that's our hope. That's what we share in the midst of our suffering. That, hey, in this life, yeah, it's the first quarter. We will suffer for a little while, but we will not lose because our Savior's won. That's how we get through these days and these sufferings. I experienced it this past week. A friend at work, a friend at church was sharing with some of us, um, sharing some of their sufferings and struggles that they had had to leave at the beginning of a worship service because of a panic attack, that they had experienced a depressive episode for a few days and how God brought people into their life to, to love them. How God reminded them of Psalm um, 136 and the words that it speaks, right? And that gave me hope. It gave a number of us hope to remember. Yes, our suffering is for a little while, but our Savior wins. That's what communities for to heal together. And now, some of you might be thinking, "Well, yeah, that's great for you. You work at the church, right? Just." sitting on your biscuit talking about Jesus all week, right? Like some of us got to go to work and do stuff, right? Like we got to audit defense department budgets and we got to teach fifth graders about the birds and the bees and we got to like make sure our infant doesn't eat Tide Pods. You know, like that's our days, right? I would venture to guess that regardless of where you work, you could probably check with some of the believers around you that you know and you could probably find 15 minutes or so every couple weeks just to get together and just to pray, just to share about the sufferings you're experiencing and, and, and how you need God to show up, right? And, and don't get it twisted. I'm not saying, and if you do all this, maybe your suffering will show up in a sermon illustration one day, right? No, I'm saying, um, hey, this is what community is for. This is why Peter thinks we need community, because we need to bring healing into each other's life. This is meant to be done in community. We need each other to fight together, to heal together. Finally, we need, um, so just so you don't miss the, the point, some of you need to go home today and say, what does it look like for me to build these kinds of connections into my life? If I'm a stay-at-home mom, what does it look like to get some other stay-at-home moms every couple weeks? Let's pray and let's share. Uh, if I'm at the Defense Department, Pentagon, wherever you might be, do you have those kinds of connections in your life where you can point each other to Christ and meet each other in your sufferings, all right? So making it clear. Um, fight together, heal together, lastly, work together, all right? These last few verses uh, in, in Peter here, kind of 12, 13, uh, 14, um, it's kind of like a day in the life of the apostle. And here's my fear. Here's what I think happens. Tell me if I'm right. You get to the last part of New Testament letters, and this is what you do. Like, you kind of skim over them, and then you're like, kind of like, okay, this is the end of the letter, yada, 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 some names I don't recognize, a kiss, that's weird. Okay, well, there we go. I finished the letter. I could check that box off one more book that I've written uh, read. Uh, let me encourage you, don't do that, because actually, um To me, these are some of the most encouraging parts of the letter because we see that we're called to work together, that um, the work of the gospel is a work together to extend the gospel and to experience the gospel, right? The work of extending the gospel is always done together, right? I mean, do you remember the time in the book of Acts when it said, the entire work of the advancement of the kingdom rested on Lydia's shoulders, or it was Paul alone who took the gospel forward. Or Priscilla all by herself made this happen. Do you remember that? No, you don't because it's not in there. Right? It's always Priscilla and Aquila, Paul and Barnabas, Tychicus and Lydia. And it's, it is God's people together moving the kingdom forward. There's no place for lone rangers. All right? And I wonder if some of us find frustration in, in trying to have an impact for the gospel like we're just stuck or we're confused or we're stumped. And it's because we've been trying to do it all by ourselves. Like we've never thought, hey, maybe I should invite a friend to pray with me about how I can reach my neighbors or a coworker to pray with me about how we can be a light for Christ in this school. Like, are you doing it together? Are we doing it together? I absolutely love that our community groups are ministering together to help resettle some of these Afghan refugee families, right? Like that's a picture of kingdom work being done together with kingdom people, and that's following, because right, Paul says, "Hey, um, think about the impact of Paul's book or this letter." Right, it has outlived him by a couple thousand years. It's been read by billions of people. Did he do it all by himself? No. He said Sylvanus, Silas, like he helped me with this. Like I couldn't have done it without Sylvanus, Peter. Was I saying Paul? I meant to say Peter, sorry. Think about the influence of Peter's book. Peter couldn't have done it without uh, Sylvanus. It it, it was a team effort. He references my son, Mark, not biological son, but a son in the faith, right? Notice, not just a workplace associate, not just a professional colleague, intimate, spiritually vital language, partnership in the gospel. Kingdom work is done together. We see that in these verses here for Peter. That it's done together. To extend the kingdom. Lastly, to experience the gospel. Um, It's done together. Working together to experience the gospel. All right. Finishing up 1 Peter. Why in the world did Peter write this letter? Verse 12. All right. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. He's wanting us to stand firm in the grace of God, and that's a work that we do together. He's wanting us to stand firm in the grace of God because he knows we drift from it, right? Like every other religion says this is what you do. Christianity says this is where you stand. Stand on the grace of Christ. Stand on the solid rock of Christ. Right? And Peter knows our proclivity. He knows our inclination to drift. He knows that we'll taste a little bit of success. We're standing on Christ. We taste success and we kind of take a step, right? And We think, hey, this, is, this seems good. Maybe I'll build my life on that. And he says, don't do that. Don't do that. Stand on Christ. Right? Or we meet with suffering. We're standing on Christ and we meet with suffering. Uh, and the evil one lies. See, God really doesn't love you. Or else this wouldn't be happening. And we say, maybe he's right. And we start drifting. We step away from the grace of God. Don't do that. Stand on Christ. This week, some of us, most definitely me, are going to mess up royally. Somewhere, somehow, some way. I'm going to say something I shouldn't. Uh, I'm going to do something I shouldn't. I'm just going to fail. And I'm going to think there's no way I'm worthy of the grace of Christ And I'm going to be tempted to kind of take a step back. Peter says, Don't. Peter says, Stand firm. Stand firm in the grace of Christ. And I don't have what it takes to do that. And you don't have what it takes to do that. You need a community. You need brothers and sisters. You need a community group. You need a Bible study. You need people sending you text messages and praying for you so that when you're tempted to step away and drift, you have someone saying, Hey, That relationship that you're trying to find life and satisfaction in, in an ultimate way, that's not going to hold you fast. Only He will hold you fast. We need to be those kinds of friends and brothers and sisters that encourage one another to stand firm in Christ. He will hold us fast. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word Thank you that you do hold us fast, that when we drift, when we lose the plot, when we try to stand on things that were never meant to hold us, you will hold us fast. And I pray that um, my friends here at Capitol Press Fairfax, we would be a community that fights together to believe the gospel, that seeks healing together, the healing that can only be found in Christ, and that works together, because Father, in our schools, in our workplaces, uh, in our suburbs, Uh, People need to know the love that is found in Christ. And so um, by your spirit and by your grace and for your glory, would you be pleased to build this kind of community among us? In Jesus' name, amen.